One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. Hey, it's Dr. Noseworthy again, and we're back with Inflammation Nation discussion about hormones and health. And um, we're going to move on now to uh, stress chemistry or the stress hormone cortisol. Now, obviously, stress reactions, or let's, let's just simply call it stress chemistry, is far more complex than just simply cortisol. Uh, what I want to do before we get into specifics about cortisol, why it's so important, is to maybe dispel a couple of myths about things like adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion. And uh, if you've been around natural medicine, you know, any amount of time or seeing natural medicine practitioners of any kind, uh, you've probably heard these terms, adrenal fatigue, adrenal exhaustion. And to be honest, outside of the natural medicine community, these, this concept and this terminology has been heavily criticized. And, you know, I believe rightly so in some cases, but I do believe that on the conventional side, which tends to um, disdain or eschew concepts like adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion, uh, are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because adrenal dysfunction, as maybe a more appropriate, broader term, is a real thing. We can identify it with um, reliable salivary testing, that kind of stuff. Um, but unfortunately, in the world of natural medicine, functional medicine, depending on someone's background, background and training, a lot of times what happens is that practitioners just kind of inherit concepts from people that they're learning from without really questioning whether they are physiologically accurate. Now, to be honest, we know a lot more now in, the, in 2022 than we did back in 2015 and 2010 and 2000 is certainly the 1960s, which uh, seems to be kind of a hotbed of a carryover, a lot of uh, concepts that are now outdated. And I guess that's really the myth that I want to bust is this idea that adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion um, is, is a thing in the sense of what that picture tends to create in your mind or a picture that gets created in your mind. What do I mean by that? Well, if you think about the, the phrase adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion, it implies that the adrenal gland itself is, <laughs> is too tired to respond to some type of a stressor. Now, in general, your stress response system doesn't care what kind of stressor is affecting you or where it comes from. So it reacts exactly the same to an emotional, cognitive, or psychological stressor as it does to a physical stressor, as it does to some kind of biochemical stressor. So for example, um, you'll get a stress reaction if you fall down and break your leg. You'll get a stress reaction that's very similar if you get fired from your job of 20 years and realize, you know, what am I going to do? I, I can't find a job in the economy as it is right now or something like that. Um, and you'll get a very similar stress response if you acquire an acute infection or you have a reactivation of a chronic latent infection, maybe something like Epstein-Barr virus. 
the bottom line is your stress response system doesn't care. Stress is stress no matter what flavor it comes in and your, your stress response system will respond appropriately. And so the main problem that I have with the idea or the concept of adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion is that it places all of the emphasis on the gland and it, it doesn't have in view the entire system. If you followed any of my work uh, either with this podcast or in other venues, if you, you know, taken the thyroid course that I have on my website, which is kind of like a do-it-yourself learning thing, um, one of the things that I point out is that we have to look at the thyroid as a system. Another term for your stress response system or your cortisol stress system is called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Your adrenal gland makes cortisol. But to be honest, your adrenal gland is really more of a passive manufacturing facility. It will only make what it's told to make. And the instructions for how much or how little cortisol to make under any given circumstance actually comes from your brain. It comes from your hypothalamus and your pituitary. And so just in the same vein that I teach, uh, either through my healthcare consumer courses, my do-it-yourself courses on my website, or if I'm teaching a functional medicine seminar to credentialed and licensed physicians, or if I'm just having a conversation with you through a podcast, the idea is we have to get our view off the gland, which is only one part of a much larger system that begins in the brain. So again, it's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal system. In fact, if you look at the thyroid, we call it the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis. If you look at the, the uh, reproductive system, we call it the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal system. Your gonads are what make th makes things like testosterone, progesterone, estrogen. And so in, in terms of what I might consider really true functional medicine, because that term is... I think it's used too loosely and too broadly. Um, one of the core tenets of functional medicine is is kind of a systems-based approach. Like let, let's look at the whole system rather than just pieces and parts. And the, this is partly an effort to solve some of the problems of conventional medicine where human physiology kind of gets exploded into its component parts and then someone gets trained in specific specialties. And you might be very good at some things, but you're not good at the bigger picture. On the flip side, functional medicine tries to not specialize in certain things unless you're saying my specialty is to see, see the bigger picture and see how everything interconnects. And so the idea of adrenal fatigue and, and adrenal exhaustion is kind of a holdover from some very outdated concepts and, and ideologies that were probably great for the time that they began. And I don't know exactly where that term started to come into vogue. Um, but now we know that it's physiologically incorrect to talk about things like adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion, particularly if it's coming from that place of I'm just focused on what the gland is or is not doing. So when I, you know, when I teach in functional medicine seminars is that if you are a functional medicine practitioner, or let's say that you're a healthcare consumer with health issues and you're seeing a functional medicine practitioner and they suggest, hey, let's do a saliva test where let's check your cortisol levels. And, you know, typically in these tests, you you do at least four, sometimes six samples, morning, noon, mid-afternoon, and then right when you go to bed. And that way we can check your circadian rhythm. We'll talk a little bit about uh, diagnostics probably in just a, a different episode. 
Um, but if they if they look at that and the assumption is, well, this is telling me about the adrenal gland, they are wrong. <laughs> They're wrong. Unless you're dealing with something like an autoimmune hypoadrenia, what we call Addison's disease, but even then they're wrong because Addison's disease isn't autoimmunity. The problem's not the adrenal gland. The problem is, in that case, the immune system, which is attacking the adrenal gland, and the adrenal system or the adrenal gland itself is just an innocent bystander. So one of the primary principles in properly interpreting salivary adrenal testing for stress chemistry is to realize that the test results that you're looking at really is not about the gland. It's about all of the things that are affecting how the brain controls the output of cortisol and determines your circadian rhythm. Let me just make sure that you understand what I mean by circadian rhythm. Um, basically, circadian rhythm is, you know, sometimes people talk about biorhythms, but basically all of our systems have some kind of variation throughout, throughout the day. And some of them vary in very short cycles and some vary in very long cycles, which could be days or weeks or even months. But nevertheless, with the circadian rhythm with the adrenal system and cortisol production, it is what we call a diurnal system, which simply means that throughout the day, the highest amount of cortisol we should have is first thing in the morning, about an hour after we wake up. And then throughout the rest of the day, you know, from from an hour to two hours after you wake up, your cortisol level should start to come down, kind of level out just around lunchtime and thereafter, and then kind of slowly decline to its lowest point right before you go to bed. And that rhythm just kind of repeats itself and repeats itself. And so when someone spits in a collection of tubes and sends several samples off to a lab for analysis, and the result is both a quantitative analysis of how much cortisol is being produced and what someone's circadian rhythm looks like, because we can just plot that on a simple graph and kind of trace a line from the dots. I'm telling you that that has very little to do with the gland itself, and it has a lot more to do with the entire system, which is rooted in the brain. So in terms of myth busting, we have to stop as, you know, as a practitioners and, and even as people with health issues who might be seeking help with our adrenal system, we have to change how we look at it absolutely have to change. Now, that doesn't mean that a test result can't come back with what we might call adrenal exhaustion, which is where all samples are too low across the board. And, and we commonly call that a flatliner. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean or imply that the adrenal gland is tired. It doesn't mean that the adrenal gland is exhausted. It doesn't mean the, adre the adrenal gland is unable to produce cortisol. All it means is that the instructions coming from the brain into the gland and the manufacturing portion of that is saying, hey, we don't need a lot of cortisol. Hi there, it's Dr. Noseworthy. I want to extend my appreciation to all of you in the Inflammation Nation who have helped my podcast become a great success in these first few months. I truly appreciate you. also wanted to let you know about my brand new do-it-yourself online program called the 5-Step Gut Protocol. I designed this program for people who want to take charge of their own health and stop waiting around for someone else to tell them what to do. I've combined old naturopathic principles with cutting edge research to create a truly unique program that will help you construct your own gut protocol. If you've ever wondered if you have gut infections, a leaky gut, or a bad microbiome, then this program will walk you through the steps to figure that out and gives you the tools that you need to formulate a practical strategy to help make things better. 
I guarantee at the end of this course, you'll know more about your gut than your doctor does. And you will feel confident that you know how to address your unique situation. You can check it out at my website at www.drnoseworthy.com. That's drnoseworthy.com. And just look for the tab at the top that says the programs. Thanks for listening. The question then is to ask, or the proper thing to do at that point is to ask the question, well, what is inhibiting cortisol production? And there's any number of things to do that, that we would have to look at. Stress and inflammation and environmental chemicals and other hormones and even neurotransmitters play a role in the regulation of how the brain is producing either a certain amount of cortisol or controlling the circadian rhythm throughout the day. And so that's probably the number one thing. And let me just give you a little bit more detail about how the brain controls this because, and I'm, I'm not going to get as detailed as I can. I'm just going to give you enough information that hopefully a light bulb goes off in your head and you go, okay, well, I've had a saliva test before. Now I need to go back and look at that a little bit differently. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I don't know if I need a saliva test to check my adrenals, but if I do, this is how I'm going to look at it. So the appropriate way to interpret that is primarily twofold. Number one is to understand that how much cortisol you are producing or not producing is a reflection of a certain part of the brain called your hypothalamus. So it's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, HPA axis. And so if the neurons in the hypothalamus, which is up in your brain, are activated or excited. They send signals to the pituitary gland, which then responds by sending signals to your adrenal glands that says, hey, let's make more cortisol. But it's still a brain-based function. Even though the gland is the one that's executing the instructions, the instructions are coming from the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus determines how much cortisol you make. So if you get a saliva test back and your total cortisol is too low, guess what? All we can conclude from that is that the hypothalamic pituitary output is being inhibited, and now we have to figure out where that's coming from. Conversely, if the hypothalamic and pituitary neurons are being um, activated, I think I actually used that, that let, me, let me flip it around because I think I got myself confused there. I think the example I gave was if you activate the hypothalamus and pituitary, you actually make more cortisol. The, the opposite is true, is that if your cortisol is too low, as I just mentioned, something's inhibiting your hypothalamus and your pituitary. So when we look at how much cortisol output we have as we assess stress chemistry, all we're asking is, is my brain sending signals to make cortisol or to not make cortisol? And that will determine the quantity and the output, unless there's something wrong with the gland itself most commonly, that is going to be autoimmunity, and that's still not a gland issue. It's an immunological dysfunction. Bottom line is, anytime there's an adrenal dysfunction that we can identify on a lab, like a salivary adrenal index, that dysfunction is always secondary to something else. And yes, we might want to support the adrenal system or the production of cortisol, in any one number of ways. Something like phosphatidylserine might help, licorice root might help, and kind of classic old school nutritional stuff would be B vitamins and vitamin C and maybe glandular extracts. You know, the choice of the intervention really kind of depends on each individual case and the paradigm that the clinician is using to look at this particular scenario. 
But what we really want to do, number one, is find and fix the problems that are causing dysregulation in the HPA axis and focus on how much cortisol is being produced or not as really a reflection of brain output and not glandular output. That's absolutely huge and it's absolutely key because now we can start to look at stressors in someone's environment or inside their body and we look at their stress chemistry and then we can start to relate that to things that affect neurological function, which is why people who really truly have adrenal dysfunction almost always have neurological symptomatology. Perhaps the most common of which would be things like brain fog, depression, anxiety, focus concentration issue, as issues, as well as things like uh, different patterns of insomnia. And there could be other things, but those are, you know, at least in my practice and with the people I've worked with for, you know, 20 odd years, that that's probably the most common things. So that's the quantity side of things. I'll give you one more before we close on this episode, and that is the circadian rhythm. So if the quantity is a reflection of hypothalamic activation or inhibition, right? If you activate the hypothalamus and pituitary, you're going to make more cortisol. If you inhibit it, you're going to make less. Simple as that. The circadian rhythm, which is the rhythm and timing of how cortisol is being parceled out at different times of the day, is under the control of a different part of the brain called the hippocampus. So, you know, the, the hypothalamus is kind of central and midline. It's deep inside the brain area. The hippocampus is uh, in the medial wall of the temporal lobe. Not that you need to know that, but the temporal lobe is used for hearing. It's used for aspects of uh, converting short-term to long-term memory. There's a whole bunch of other things that it does. But as it relates to controlling circadian rhythm, it's the hippocampus that does that. Now, here's the interesting thing is that the neurons in the hippocampus that control circadian rhythm are very, very sensitive to inflammation and stress. So much so that if you exceed your capacity to control those things and you have an onslaught of inflammation and oxidative stress that it's affecting that part of the brain, the hippocampal neurons begin to degenerate and the brain loses control over the circadian rhythm. We call it a broken circadian rhythm, and there's any number of patterns that can show up. There's not just kind of one standard. Any of the four data points that we collect with saliva testing can be high or low at any given time, and so we just kind of have to run the test and look and see what's there. But in the case of a broken circadian rhythm, we don't blame the gland because the gland is doing what it's told to do, and the instructions for circadian rhythm control come from that medial wall of the temporal lobe, the structure called the hippocampus, which is very sensitive to stress and inflammation, which is a bad deal because we're trying to control stress and inflammation. And if stress and inflammation reduces my control and my ability to respond to stress and inflammation, that's a bad deal and becomes a vicious cycle. The other interesting aspect of this then is that the hippocampal formation that controls circadian rhythm is also responsible for converting short-term to long-term memory, which is why a lot of people with chronic stress end up with kind of glitchy memories. They, they're like, you know, I got I to gotta live my, used to be with sticky notes until we got smartphones and apps and reminders and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I've, years and years and years ago before smartphones became ubiquitous, you know, people would tell me like, if I don't write down a list or if I don't have sticky notes all over my office, my computer, my fridge, um, then I just, I can't remember anything. You know, we kind of laughingly joke and call these senior moments, but you know, here's the scary part of it for, for you. If you're someone who, who has this problem is that this adrenal dysfunction with abnormal circadian rhythm, which might be a reflection of 
stress and inflammation, not saying where that's coming from, but just saying that's probably what's going on. Um, it, that looks like the early stages of Alzheimer's. And so people start wondering, my gosh, like, you know, am I losing my marbles? Do I, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting things and I, you know, I can't find words. I can't figure out where my phone is or find my parked car. Where did I put my keys? Where's my cell phone? You know, any number of things. And you start getting concerned that you're slipping into, you know, some stage of dementia, perhaps Alzheimer's. And in fact, with Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia, the hippocampus is the first target. And this is why adrenal dysfunction and early stages of Alzheimer's look the same is because it has an impact on, on the same structure. But it doesn't mean that they are the same thing. In fact, one of the ways that we can differentiate between someone who has brain-based issues, particularly memory problems, associated with stress inflammation and stress chemistry or an abnormal circadian rhythm is how they respond to treatment. Because typically, some of the science is changing on this now, but typically we look at Alzheimer's as a progressive problem. And it's not generally going to get better by taking adrenal supplements or finding and removing stressors that are taxing the system. But if we put together a protocol that tries to find and fix the underlying issue while supporting the system, and again, that's mostly brain-based rather than gland-based, and if that starts to get better and we do another saliva test 30, 60, 90 days down the road and we see a circadian rhythm improving, guess what? That's probably not Alzheimer's disease. The other thing we tend to look at is family history. So if someone's got that short-term memory issue and they're stressed out and they have an abnormal circadian rhythm and nobody in their family's got dementia, chances are it's not dementia. So um, so busting myths. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to bring that to a close for right now. But that's a really key one, particularly because adrenal testing is so common in functional medicine circles and natural medicine in general. And I believe it's a, a vital, vital way to, or an aspect, a vital aspect of working up a case in the beginning to understand what's promoting somebody's uh, symptomatology and their complaints. Um, but it has to be interpreted properly. And we have to get away from this idea that, you know, you've got exhausted or fatigued adrenal system. The other thing I'll say right before I close is that you never know what someone's profile is like until you look, until you actually do a test, because um, there is some correlation, but it's certainly not pure and 100% between uh, symptomatology that we kind of peg as adrenal dysfunction or circadian rhythm problems and what their circadian rhythm actually looks like. And so you might look at someone and go, okay, you're stressed out, you're tired all the time, you're not sleeping, you must have adrenal exhaustion. And I'm telling you, they can have a perfectly normal cortisol rhythm and a normal amount of cortisol being produced. And all of those symptoms are coming from something else. And so it really bothers me when, you know, there are health experts out on social media or YouTube or wherever it is. And they start making these big claims about if this happens, then your cortisol is going to be high. And in my head, I'm going like, really, how do you know that? Because you can't base it just on symptoms. You have to run the test because you'll be wrong more than you'll be right if you're trying to guess just simply based on scenarios or based on someone's symptom complex. All right, we got more to say about cortisol, but let's cut it short for there. Not really short, we're right at 20 minutes. We'll see you on the next Inflammation Nation. Thank you so much for listening to the Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. 
then why not head over to my main website, drnoseworthy.com, that's drnoseworthy.com, to explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time.